This is an ABC podcast. So much has changed since the year 2000. We no longer tried to text messages using the number pad of an old school Nokia and playing the occasional game of Snake. For some of us, our smartphone now provides our paycheck. In the last 20 years, the way we're employed has evolved almost as quickly as our mobile phones. For a lot of us, that means our work has become a lot less secure than it once was. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're delving into the rise in insecure work, how it's grown, the impact it's had on us, and what we can do about it. Hello, my name's Daniel Burke, and I'm a teacher, but probably not in the traditional sense that you would imagine a teacher. I teach online. I make mostly, at the moment, video courses to teach beginners machine learning. I currently have about seven revenue streams. The best thing for the way I work now, the best thing to me, is the the freedom to be able to decide what I do with my time. There was a slight getting used to it period. So, for example, I, I've got weekly paychecks in the past and whatnot, weekly, fortnightly, monthly, whatever. Now it's sort of my income ebbs and flows with the market. The main point would be to shift a mindset change from rather than using technology as a consumption device to using it as a creation device. That's probably the only one big change that I've made in the past four years. And that that one change from spending more time consuming to more time creating has allowed me to completely change my lifestyle. Daniel works in what's called the gig economy, a labour market where workers are predominantly hired on short-term contracts or as freelancers as opposed to having permanent jobs. And this is what gig economy expert Diane Mulcahy says we should all be doing. Diane developed the first MBA course on the gig economy at Babson College in the US, and her advice to her students is that they should stop looking for a full-time job and embrace this new way of working. Yeah, I mean, I suggest that because, as I was alluding to earlier, when you take a full-time job with a single employer, you introduce significant risk into your professional life. The best analogy I can offer is investing. When you invest, you know, you don't pick just one stock and put all of your money into it. There's too much concentration risk. Anything that happens with that company and your investment can can lose significant amounts of money. So what we do as investors is we build a diversified portfolio of multiple stocks. I advocate the same approach in our professional lives. Instead of concentrating your risk with a single employer and one job, why not diversify your income streams and therefore reduce the risk that any one company by letting you go or laying you off can really destabilize your financial life. Insecure work is not a new concept in Australia. Over the last 20 years, the percentage of casual workers has only risen 2% and it's still the case that around one in four workers are employed this way. But Sarah Charlesworth, Professor of Gender Work and Regulation from RMIT, says we shouldn't be fooled by the figures. People often say, well, insecure work has hardly grown. It still remains at about a quarter of the labour force. But alongside that work, we have seen other erosions of working conditions that make work less secure. So that even in permanent or what used to be full-time work, we've seen an increasing use of short-term 
contracts. We have seen the beginning of casualisation of full-time at work. It used to be that most casual work was overwhelmingly on a part-time basis. And the increase of connectivity has also played a role. With the gradual development of globalisation, we've seen an increase in outsourcing. So individual companies decide, well, look, take my university, for example, quite a few years ago, it said, well, look, we're in the teaching business, we shouldn't be doing security. So they then contracted out RMIT security. They said, well, we need to clean our buildings, but it's not our core business. We've contracted that out. This year, it was revealed that almost 70% of Victorian university staff are employed insecurely. And whilst Victoria is the only state where academic institutions have to report casual employment data, industry figures say this is reflected nationally. Hi, I'm Georgia, and I've been a casual academic at university for six years, both as a teacher and a researcher. I think the two things that really stand out to me about being a casual at universities is, first of all, we do a lot of unpaid work. I've done, I can tell you, I've done 27 hours of work that wasn't paid just in the first six weeks of semester. And that's equivalent to about $1,800 of work that I just, I won't see that money. We can be let go with a moment's notice. A few years ago, so this was pre-COVID-19, back in I believe it was 2018, I'd been teaching for three years and I went to my boss at the start of semester, as I always did, and said, you know, how are enrolments looking? How's your prep going? And how much do you want me to teach this semester? You know, what's what's the enrolment numbers? And he said he'd already hired tutors and that there wasn't any work for me. So I was, you know, depending on that income, that was my main source of income at the time. And he didn't even have to notify me that I didn't have that work. And it's heartbreaking. It's really hard to go semester on semester, year on year, just hoping that work will turn up, just hoping that there might be a grant scheme that you're eligible for, just hoping that you might qualify for something. And COVID hasn't made the situation any easier. During the pandemic, nearly 12,500 people lost their jobs at Australian universities. More than half of them were casuals. And gig economy expert Diane Mulcahy says this isn't unusual. So even within the traditional jobs economy, there really isn't any job security. And we've seen that manifest in this pandemic. We have seen the unemployment rate rise. We've seen layoffs. So even if you have a traditional job, you may perceive that you are stable and secure, but in reality, you're not. So all work is insecure. And you had a really interesting concept about the disaggregation of jobs uh, to work. Um, Can you explain that in more detail? Every company has work that they need to get done in order to execute their business model. And traditionally, companies have organized that work into full-time jobs, and then they hire full-time employees to execute that work. What we're seeing now is the disaggregation of that. So companies are rethinking how they organize that work. And instead of organizing it all into full-time jobs, they're organizing it into projects and assignments and tasks that independent contractors and independent workers can come in and accomplish. So the example I like to use is a traditional vice president of marketing role. So companies used to take a variety of marketing activities 
and they would roll that all into a single job and call it the VP of marketing. But now what we see is companies are thinking a little bit more strategically about that and you know, putting a crisis management firm or retainer or actually only contacting them if they need it. And then hiring an independent worker to do their social media, somebody who's particularly skilled in that area and can work very efficiently to help the company execute a social media strategy, but they don't need to be a full-time employee. So it really gives the companies a lot more resilience, agility, flexibility, and efficiency to think about organizing work differently and hiring workers differently. Sarah Charlesworth says employment law in Australia has struggled to keep up with this way of working. It's very much working on an undercutting model. These platforms say that we're not employers, we're just merely enabling people who want to work with people who want work done and we're just merely linking them. Uh, We've got fairly undeveloped law in Australia around these kind of Uberized platforms. In the UK and in some states of the US, it's different. So, for example, Uber has been found to be an employer, both in the UK and also in some jurisdictions in the United States. In Australia so far, while Uber hasn't been to um, subject of a case, some of the Deliveroo-type platforms have, and our Fair Work Commission is certainly at the moment arguing that these are in fact not employment relationships. So I suppose that's another change to really bring up. So we've had these changes of employment. Our labour law, if you like, was set up to protect full-time ongoing jobs. The rise in insecure work over the last 20 years isn't purely down to the prevalence of the gig economy though. If you're employed in Australia, you've probably heard of awards. They're the legal documents that outline the pay and conditions for each industry or occupation. Sarah says in 2007, a lot of the awards were simplified by the Fair Work Act. This was another stepping stone towards insecurity. In sectors that used part-time work, it made the part-time work conditions much more porous. So, for example, in both retail and home care work, while you can be employed as a permanent part-time worker, typically the employers now give you short guaranteed hours, so you might get 10 hours, 12 hours a week, but the award allows you to be flexed up without being paid casual rates, but now allows you to be flexed up to 38 hours a week and then drop back again to your 12 hours a week, which has had a couple of effects. It casualises permanent part-time work, but it also means that workers' hours are unpredictable and if you keep workers hungry for hours, then they are desperate for additional shifts. It makes it very hard for them to organise the rest of their lives. So we've got low wages, few hours of work so that you have not only job insecurity, but you have working time insecurity. There's been a lot of research on the impact of these uncertain work arrangements on our health over the last 20 years. But perhaps the most surprising research shows it can actually change your personality. What we did is we looked at what's the effect of someone experiencing chronic job insecurity, what's the effect of that on their later personality? And because personality had been measured more than once in the survey, we were able to actually look to see if personality changed. 
That's Distinguished Professor Sharon Parker. She's an expert in employee growth and development from Curtin University. She's part of a research team who've studied the effect of insecure work on personality. They tracked more than a 1,000 Australians over almost a decade and found three common changes in personality. The first is that they become less emotionally stable. So, um, and th- so this is a personality aspect which is all about sort of um, well, pretty much as it sounds, actually. So you're someone who can sort of be reasonably relaxed and and I guess some, we used to actually call it neuroticism, this personality characteristic, the opposite of emotional stability is neuroticism. The second change is that you become less agreeable and agreeableness is a personality dimension which is really about are you someone that sort of likes to be nice in a sense? Are you someone that likes to help other people and be cooperative and form sort of relationships with people? Are you someone who is a bit other-focused rather than completely sort of self-focused? And so, again, not surprisingly, when people experience worry for a long time about whether they're going to have a job, they become a bit more self-focused. They become a bit less agreeable in terms of their personality. So that's the second change. And then the third change is they become less conscientious. And this is a really important one because a great deal of research has shown that if you're conscientious, you're actually much likely to be a better performer in your job. So, um, in fact, there have been studies across hundreds and hundreds of jobs that show this is actually one of the best predictors of job performance. So if you want to get a good performer, get someone who's conscientious because this is someone who's going to set goals reliably achieve them, put in effort, you know, persist if there are problems and so on. But what we find is that if, again, you are experiencing job insecurity for a long time, then you become less conscientious. And is there anything that we can do to stop job insecurity from affecting our personality other than finding secure work, as you say, the situation where that might not always be an option? Yeah, that's a great question. And that leads me to mention another piece of research that we did. And this was some research that a colleague actually led in the Netherlands. We looked at people who were on temporary employment contracts and we measured them as their contracts got closer and closer to ending. And we measured their sense of insecurity. So, um, What we found was that most people, as you can imagine, as your contract gets closer and closer to ending, you feel more insecure. You feel more worried. Am I going to get another job? But there was one group of people who actually felt just as secure, even though their temporary contracts were getting closer to actually ending. And and these were all people, by the way, who didn't have a follow-up contract. And the group of people that felt more secure, even though they were their contract was about to end, were people who engaged in what we call proactive career behaviours. So these were people that were very proactively, so and being proactive is about being sort of self-starting and being future-focused. So they were out there trying to, in a sense, make themselves more employable through proactive behaviours like building networks, reaching out to their friends and family and colleagues to ask what opportunities that there are, building new skills that they think could be useful for helping to get a job and so on. So all these sorts of behaviours which they initiated themselves but they were all about really trying to stay employable. So it sort of makes sense that 
These people, their contracts are about to end, but they have been engaging in behaviours that make them feel like they are more likely to get a job. And those people didn't experience that insecurity. And that's important because we actually know from other research that if you feel insecure, it's not a great mental state. You know, it affects your well-being, it affects your job satisfaction, it affects your commitment. So um, actually, if you're able to ward off those feelings of insecurity, it's going to be better for you and it's going to increase your chance actually of getting a job. So I think that really highlights that individuals can do something. Now, of course, you know, during COVID, for example, if your whole industry is, you know, really wiped out or, you know, there, there are really sometimes changes that are completely beyond your control. But as much as possible, focusing on building your own employability. So building your own sense that, okay, if I lose this job, I can still get another job. That's something that individuals can really do to, to feel more secure in their work. And that's going to then have other mental health and, and benefits for them. Gig economy expert Diane Mulcahy says Professor Sharon Parker is bang on the money. Rather than waiting for the job that may no longer exist, we should develop our skills and diversify the kinds of jobs or gigs that we're equipped for. You know, as a professional, I I don't think it makes sense to define yourself by a title at a company. And I think we're seeing this, you know, if your listeners go on LinkedIn, you can really see a bifurcation. There's a bunch of uh, people who are on LinkedIn who have titles and a company in their as as sort of their main profile uh, summary of what they do, and then on the other hand, there's a whole group of people that really have what I call like slash profiles. So, like myself, I you know I'm an investor, an author, a professor, uh, an advisor. So those are all the things I do, and those reflect the skills and the value that I bring to the table quite specifically uh, to any client rather than naming, you know, a title at one employer. And for those starting off their careers, how do they um, start figuring out who they are in terms of what they might put in in their slash profile? Yeah, I mean, I think for, you know, and I deal with this with my students, when you're talking about people who are really just starting their careers, whether it's college graduates or even graduate students, oftentimes the best way to acquire a number of skills all at once, as well as credibility through branding, um, is to get a full-time job. So many times for for people just starting their career, a full-time job is the most efficient way to acquire skills and credibility. At the same time, I always recommend, really regardless of what uh, stage in your career you're in, you should always have a side gig. You should always have something that you're doing on the side, whether it's something that you really um, are passionate about that's completely different from your day job, or maybe it's using the same skills as your day job, but applying them differently. So, you know, if you're an accountant at a big accounting firm, maybe your side gig is working with nonprofits and helping them with their books in their back office, or maybe it's working with startup companies that can't really bring on a finance person. Um, And, you know, the benefits of a side gig are many. In some cases, they generate revenue. Um, So you can actually get clients that value the services that you're delivering and they'll pay you. So that's great. But even if that's not the case, which might be true when you're first starting out in your career, 
working on a side gig, let's say for a nonprofit or for, for other clients can um, improve your skills and can demonstrate your skills. It can open up uh, your network. So now all of a sudden you have a larger network, including people that have worked with you in a different capacity. And of course, it creates future opportunities because you've built a portfolio in addition to your full-time job and you've met all these other people. So a side gig really delivers benefits no matter how you structure it and whether or not you earn money from it. And Diane, what would you say to people who respond, you know, that that seems good for people who are perhaps doing MBAs and who have um, all these possibilities in front of them. But what about the more vulnerable in our society? Um, For example, aged care workers, people who work in a factory. I think that's such an important question. And, um, you know, for, for unskilled workers that are in jobs, you know, Oftentimes, they share the same economic situation as gig workers that are in unskilled gigs. So they're not well paid uh, and they don't have a lot of security. What working a side gig can do or working in the gig economy instead of a job like that can do is introduce a lot more control and autonomy. So I'll give you an example. An unskilled worker could be, let's say, a cashier at a fast food restaurant. And that person economically is not materially different from somebody who is, you know, running, uh, you know, delivering for a food delivery company or driving for Uber. They're both not well paid. The difference is that the person who is working as a cashier is dependent on their employer for uh, their hours, right? So their employer gives them a certain number of hours per week, and they also are dependent on their employer for a schedule which is variable. And so holding that position makes it really difficult for them to do anything else outside their life, whether it's organized, consistent, you know, family care or pursue personal goals or work another job or go to school because they don't really have control over their time. What working in the gig economy can do is introduce that control. So I wouldn't underestimate the impact on quality of working life that that kind of control uh, can introduce to unskilled workers. And and I guess this ties into the fact that you're doing an MBA um, program on this, but do you feel like workers or future workers are skilled up to um, have that kind of agile mindset able to work the gig economy to their favour? I think that's the crux of the issue is you know, are workers in the right mindset to understand that their career is unlikely to include 30 or 40 years of continuous full-time employment? I think there are a lot of workers that haven't really accepted that fact. And in terms of skills, just like in the jobs economy, there's a range of skills in the gig economy workforce, ranging from unskilled to very highly skilled. I think what's different about where we are today in our economy, so this applies to full-time employees and to independent workers, is that the opportunities to change your skill set are so much more prevalent, uh, easier to access, asynchronous, and very low cost. So it's incredibly easy for any worker to go online and take courses that are very low cost that can be taken at any time that you choose 
and our certifications that you can get, that you can add to your resume, that you can add to your LinkedIn profile, that you can add to a job application. There's so much more control that workers have over changing their skill set. It's no longer limited to, did you go to college or did you not? There's many, many more ways available to change your skill set over the course of your career. That was Diane Mulcahy. If you'd like to read more about her work or for more information on any of the guests you heard today, head to our website. Just search for This Working Life. Oh, and some brilliant news. You can now also catch us on Spotify. This episode was produced by Edwina Stott, member of the gig economy, and boy, has her personality changed. The supervising producer was Maria Tickle. She's a full-timer, secure worker. I'm Lisa Leong. Until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.